Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. We've been going through a study on Sunday morning starting this year, verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians. And with that being said, there are different levels of respect that every single person deserves And the level of respect will directly reflect really the level of influence that each person possesses. This is called leadership. You're familiar with that term. And within this concept of leadership, there are two overall categories. There are assigned leaders and then there are emergent leaders. Assigned leaders are those leaders that base really their leadership upon their assigned positions. Matter of fact, uh, for example, shift managers and CEOs, bosses are just to name a few examples of assigned leaders. Assigned leaders are always leaders based upon their position, but not necessarily leaders outside of their position. Emergent leaders, on the other hand, are those that naturally lead and influence a group of people based upon their traits. For example, studies have shown that those who possess height, intelligence, extroversion, in other words, they're sociable, good with people, fluent, and drive generally carry with them a following. When others perceive an individual as the most influential member of a group or an organization, regardless of that individual's title, that person is exhibiting emergent leadership. With every leader, there comes a level of power. Leadership and power go hand in hand. Leadership, by definition, is influencing others in order to result in a change. And this cannot take place if you do not have power. And just like assigned leaders and emergent leaders with power, you have power that comes from physician and power that comes from influence. And research has found that there are really five overall bases of power. There's the referent power that's based upon a follower's identification or liking of that individual. In other words, they will gain power based upon their influence and their liking. You've got expert power, those that have leadership based upon them being experts of that field. Then you've got legitimate power, the president of the United States, your boss, associated, those that have associated power with a status or their formal job authority. You've got reward power, those that are derived from having the capacity to provide rewards to others, and you have coercive power, those that use punishment in order to gain power. For example, your coach sits a player down on the bench for not being on time for practice. He's using coercive power. While all these statuses of power are necessary for control, perhaps one of the most powerful forms of leadership is servant leadership. And while Jesus certainly has referent power, expert power, legitimate power, as well as others, the most outstanding leadership trait that Jesus has is the fact that he not only commanded his followers to pursue likeness or to pursue holiness and his likeness, he came to earth to model that to model his righteousness as well as making it possible for mankind to come to him. No other God, no other belief system has a God that has done that other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very essence of leadership and influence. And this morning, what we're going to discover is this overall subject of the preeminence of Christ. What we're going to discover is that Jesus Christ not only has positional leadership, but one that emerges based upon the work and example of Christ. And so with that being said, Colossians chapter 1, as we continue our study in the book of Colossians, that's where we are here this morning. Colossians chapter 1, just as a way of review, the book of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul 
to the church in Colossae. The Apostle Paul had never been to the church of Colossae. It was founded by really those that had been saved underneath the fruit of the Apostle Paul's ministry, Epaphras and Philemon. They founded the church, and the church of Colossae was a great church. As I've been mentioning every single week, you read the first part of Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul thanks the church for having their faith in Christ, for loving the brotherhood. But the issue is the church began to become distracted. They allowed philosophy, they allowed other religions and other teachings into the church, specifically Greek Orthodox, specifically Gnosticism, which didn't outright reject Christ because they would have not accepted it. They looked at Christ as being an important figure to God, but not the only way to God. And so it was an easier pill for this church to swallow. And the church of Colossae was headed on its way to severe ruin because they kept allowing all those false philosophies to creep into the church. And so the Apostle Paul, compassionate for the church, moved by this, as he was under house arrest in Rome, writes this letter to the church of Colossae. And he develops his overall point for the sufficiency of Christ by focusing on one particular subject, and that is the preeminence of Christ. We understand that the term preeminence means superior above all else. The point that Paul makes is that Jesus Christ is the way to salvation, the only way, the only one worth living for. It's not anything plus Jesus Christ. It is Christ alone through uh, the grace of God alone. That is Paul's entire point in the book of Colossians. And so he develops his point. We see here in the first entire chapter of uh, one here in the book of Colossians is really the doctrine for this. And we've been developing it from the very beginning. This morning, we find ourselves specifically in verses 18 through 23. So it's in within this section that we really see the foundational support for Christ's preeminence when it comes to, and this is a Bible word that we'll explain, when it comes to our reconciliation to the Father. As we discussed earlier with these leadership profiles, some leaders are leaders by position only. Some leaders are leaders based upon their personality and their natural characteristics. And this morning, what we're going to see is that Christ's preeminence does not refer to his position only. In other words, he is not a true leader only based upon his position, but rather through his personal work and our redemption in relation to our uh, a reconciliation, it shows that the preeminence of Christ made it possible for us to have a new life because his death made it possible for us to be reconciled to the Father. So if you could stand with me out of respect of God's word, we're going to read Colossians chapter 1 and verses 18 down to verse 23 this morning. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be thrones in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. And the body of his flesh through the death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is now or which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. In their book, The Leadership Challenge, which I have in my office, James Cowses and Barry Posner gather data from over 1.3 million people about the observable skills and behaviors of leadership or leaders. And they found that despite differences in culture, gender, age, and other variables, good leaders effectively model the way, enable others to act, and encourage the heart. 
What we observe in our passage here this morning is that while it is true that Christ is preeminent in all things, this is not simply a positional status. Christ modeled the way for His followers, and He enabled His followers to become holy through His sacrifice. And so our goal through our study this morning is to see how the preeminence of Christ relates to our reconciliation to the Father. So the title of the message this morning is The Preeminence of Christ in Our Reconciliation. Thank you. You may be seated. In verses 15 through 19, the Apostle Paul really lays out, the, which as we discovered last week, lays out the groundwork for the foundation of the deity of Christ. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is 100% God. As we transition to verses 20 through 23 specifically, the Apostle Paul explains Christ's sufficiency in our reconciliation. It is interesting to note, though, that the familiar term for the word reconcile is only used twice in the Old Test or in the New Testament. It occurs in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 5, verse 10. In both of these situations, it is used in reference to the relationship between man and God. But what makes this term of reconcile different here in Colossians chapter 1 is, in, is the fact that in the original Greek, there is a preposition found in front of it. And since the preposition is found in front of the word reconcile here in Colossians chapter 1, what it does is it intensifies the word. It intensifies it. So you may ask yourself, is this really that important? Absolutely. See, the reason why the Apostle Paul intensifies the word in, in Colossians chapter 1 and not in the other two passages is because in the other two passages, he wasn't fighting against the false heresies and the false doctrine that crept in within the church. We talked about this last week. Gnosticism, which had become a popular teaching, taught that Jesus really wasn't uh, fully God. Jesus is really an emanation in which God created at some point in all of creation. In other words, God created Jesus, and it was then through Jesus that all of the earth was created, which is a complete heresy. Jesus is fully God. Jesus always existed. Jesus is eternal. We talked about the Trinity last week, the Trinity being three in one. So God is uh, the Godhead. You have the Father, you have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, but all of them are God fully at the same time. That is the Trinity. So the Apostle Paul, in order to prove his point after he comes off the tail end of verses 15 down to verse 17, says that we are reconciled by using that preposition, emphasizing the fact that it is only through Jesus that we are fully reconciled, helping us understand that Jesus is fully God, what is crucial for this. The Greek word for the, uh, for the term reconcile means to exchange or to change. In the New Testament, the usage of this word refers to a change in the sinner's relationship to God, and it is through the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ that sinners are reconciled to the Father. We see in Romans chapter 5, verse 10 specifically, it says this, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now before we develop this, there are several doctrinal terms that we have to understand. I'm going to give those to you, and it was made very simple in its explanation by John MacArthur. And the, the first word that we're going to look at is the word justification. Justification is a sinner stands before God as the accused, and he's declared righteous. That is justification. You have the word redemption. A sinner stands before God as a slave, and he's granted freedom by ransom. You have forgiveness. Forgiveness is a sinner stands before God as a debtor, and the debt is now forgotten. 
Reconciliation, which is our focus here this morning, is a sinner stands before God as an enemy and he becomes a friend. And then you have sonship. Sonship or adoption, if you will, they're both the same. A sinner stands before God as a stranger and he's made a son. What we see here in verses 18 through 23 is that since Christ is preeminent, he is the only way in which a sinner can be reconciled to the Father. The preeminence of Christ affords him the proper position as well as the power to reconcile sinners. And so the first thing that we're going to observe here this morning is the position of Christ. The position of Christ. Look down at verse 18. The Apostle Paul states this, Jesus is the what? He is the head of the body, the church. The preeminence of Christ places him as the foundational stone and sovereign ruler of his church. The chapel is not Brandon Joyner's church. The chapel is not your church. The chapel is Jesus's church. We come here to worship him Sunday and Wednesdays and whenever we have services, not for the sake of the pastor, but for the cause of Christ. My, my priority as a pastor, as I mentioned last week, is not to preach in a way in which you are drawn to me. My priority as a pastor is to preach in a way in which you are drawn to Christ. Because if you go to a church in which you are drawn to the pastor, guess what's going to happen when that pastor leaves? Majority of the people leave. You don't come to church for me, you come to church for Christ. And so my prayer as a pastor is that when I preach that you don't see me, my lack of ability in doing so, or whatever the case may be, you only see Christ. He is the foundation of this church. So you may ask yourself, how does reconciliation play a role in the position of Christ over the church? Well, the church itself is composed of a body of believers. You have to look at the Greek term. The biblical definition of a church is not simply gathering together and worshiping and praying and preaching. That's not what a church is. The Greek term for the word church is ekklesia, which means an assembly or called out. The root meaning of the word church is not a building, but people. And so as I was talking to the family that was visiting with us here this morning, I said, yes, welcome to our auditorium. You walk right in and boom, you're here. There's no lobby here. We got kicked out of the public school earlier this year because of COVID. And so this is living proof that a church is not a building because we've been nomads for like the first three years of our ministry. We still have people. That's what a church is. It's a group of people. But we're going to get a little bit more specific than that. It is not just a group of people in which we gather together and, and whether they're saved or unsaved. The true definition of a church, a universal church more or less, is a group of people that are saved. They are followers of Christ. And so let's continue to develop this term here. And this is what Paul is referring to in the latter part of the verse when he states, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. When Paul refers to Christ as being the beginning, he's referring to the origin of the church. Christ is the conception of the church, and he made it possible for people to be added to it. But here's the neat part about all of this, if you were to look at that verse. Because of what Christ did for the church, we have the opportunity to live forever. Look at what Paul says. When he refers to Christ as being the firstborn from the dead, he is referencing the fact that Christ was the first chronologically to be resurrected, never to die again. He was not the first to be resurrected. As we understand, Lazarus was obviously resurrected before him, but the first to be resurrected and never to die again. He was the first one to conquer death, and our future resurrection is based upon the accomplishment that we have in Christ. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have hope. 
The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ are at his coming. So what we see here in verse 18 is this. The preeminence of Christ in our reconciliation places Christ as the position of the head of the church. Without the reconciliation of Christ, there would be no church because there would be no one reconciled to the Father. And so therefore, there's no church because no one is saved. So the first aspect we see in our scripture study here is the position of Christ, him being the head of the church. And what we're going to look at now in verses 19 through 20 is the power of Christ, which leads us to our second point here. And that is the power of Christ. Look down to verse 19. It says, for it pleased the father that in him should all the fullness dwell. This verse right here explains why Jesus is preeminent in all things. In verse 18, it says that in all things he might have the preeminence, and that is actually true because in Christ all the fullness dwells. Let me ask yourself, what exactly does that mean? Well, what Paul's doing here is he's circling back to the statements that he lays out in verses 15 through 17. In verse 15, the Apostle Paul states that Christ is the image of God. In other words, Jesus is God. Because Jesus is fully God, all the fullness of God's deity is contained within Christ. And this is a big deal. It was a big deal. It still will be a big deal in making this statement because all the popular teaching ripped away the very deity of Christ. As I shared with you last week, there was a gentleman that came to our church several years ago when we were first meeting over at the Smith Middle School. And uh, he came to church and he made a profession of faith after church in my car as I was taking him out to lunch. He texted me a few weeks later, or a few days later, after we were meeting for discipleship. He says, Pastor Brandon, I'm having a really hard time accepting the fact that Jesus is both the Son of God and God as well. See, he grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. The Jehovah's Witnesses we discussed last week taught the, that Arianism was the correct view of the Trinity. Arianism teaching that Jesus is not God. Jesus is simply a creation from God. See, if, you, if we cannot accept, a person cannot accept that Jesus is both God and the Son of God, but fully God, then we have a hard time accepting Jesus as being our Savior. How can Jesus come and save us if He is not fully God? We have to be very careful in explaining the Son of God to people. Since Christ became man in human flesh, some people want to claim that Christ had to give up certain aspects of His deity in order to become man. And this is heresy. When Christ became human flesh, he gave up no aspects of his deity. If you want to flip back there, you can. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 15, uh, 5 through 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." So when Paul says that he made himself of no reputation, this phrase is more clearly translated, he emptied himself. Now we have to be careful with that. Because the term kenosis is, is really what that, that, that term emptying himself means. is not referencing that Christ gave up his deity. What it's referencing is that Christ set aside certain privileges when becoming a man. For example, when Christ became man in human flesh, he set aside heavenly glory. 
He set aside independent authority. The Bible says he submitted to the will of the Father. He set aside divine display of certain attributes. He set aside eternal riches. He was poor on earth. And he set aside favorable relationship with God, as we see evidence specifically as he's hanging on the cross and the Father turned his back on him because he's hanging there with our sin placed on him. But he did not become any less of a deity. He did not give up any aspects of his deity. He was still fully God. He was 100% God and 100% man. Going back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, when Paul says that it pleased the Father, that in Christ all fullness should dwell, this is in reference to, to the fact that Jesus is fully God. This maintains the power of Jesus so that he could sufficiently perform this whole entire reconciliation process. Now, I want you to look down at verse 20. There is a ton of doctrinal information in this verse, and we're going to break this down very slowly so we have a full grasp of what the Apostle Paul is communicating here. In verse 20, he says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, I say whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. I wanted to look at the first term here, and that is this term, having made peace. See, as I shared with Cameron this past week, as we were discussing on this subject of sin and the subject of salvation, every single person that was ever born was born at war with God. Because of their sin, they were born at war with God. The Bible says specifically in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law, neither indeed can be. We cannot save ourselves because we are not strong enough. Every single person that has been born has been born in sin, and so therefore you are at war with God. And there's nothing you can do about that to overcome that war with God. The second phrase that you're going to see here is that term through the blood of his cross and it is so important that we use that word blood some people say that it was sufficient enough for christ to be strangled and that is absolutely not true say so why was it a big deal for christ to shed his blood if you were to go back to leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 during the old testament law there the apostle or, or um, God delivers to Moses. He says, life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Making atonement is satisfying someone or something for an offense committed. And in essence, God said to Moses in Leviticus 17, 11, I have given to you the creature's life, which is in its blood to make atonement for yourselves, covering the offenses you have committed against me. In other words, those who are covered by the blood sacrifice are set free from the consequences of sin. If you were to flip to Hebrews chapter 11, or see Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 18, it confirms that the shedding of Jesus' blood is necessary for the remission of our sins. And we've explained this before. The term remission is in reference to buying back. Because we are in sin, we are owned by Satan. The only currency that can buy us back is the blood of Jesus Christ. Hence the reason why Jesus Christ sheds his blood. But look at the next phrase here in verse 20. It says, to reconcile all things to himself. And as we discovered at the beginning, the word reconcile means to change or to exchange. And the New Testament usage of this word refers to a change in the sinner's relationship to God. And it is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that sinners are reconciled to the Father. In the book, Basic Christianity by John Stott, he describes the reconciliation process between sinful man and holy God in this way. He says, God is the author of reconciliation and Christ is the one through whom he brings it about. 
But you may ask yourself, what exactly does this word reconciliation mean? The answer is that it indicates either an action by which two parties in conflict are brought together, or the states in which their oneness is enjoyed and expressed, Paul says that this reconciliation is something that we have received through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have not achieved it by our own efforts. We have received it from Him as a gift. Sin caused a separation between us and God. The cross, the crucifixion of Christ, has brought us back together. Sin made us enemies, he goes on to say. The cross has brought peace. Sin created a gulf between us and God, and the cross has bridged it. Sin broke the relationship. The cross has restored it. To put the same truth across in different words as Paul does in his letter to the Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The final phrase that I want you to notice here in this verse is this. Whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Christ's death on the cross, as he makes it clear here, not only paid the price for man's redemption, but for the entire universe. As we understand, mankind was not the only creature that was affected by sin. Creation was as well. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. It says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subject the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Eventually, the Bible says, all of the corrupted creation will be reconciled. Now, before we continue, there's a popular teaching that has crept into the church referred to as universalism or universalists. Universalists believe that when the Bible talks about all things will be reconciled, that eventually everybody will be saved. And that is completely false. That is not the case. So when the Bible says here that all things will be reconciled to him or all things will be reconciled to himself, this is not meaning that everybody will be saved. This is really referring to the fact that Jesus will bring back true and peaceful order in all of creation. Pastor Bryce is kind of starting a business here on the side to kind of help offset some of the costs that his family uh, needs to pay for, and that is bookkeeping. The word reconcile, when it comes to accounting, is really bringing everything back into proper order. Someone describes it this way, true and peaceful order means receiving Christ Jesus as he is, and that is Lord. And within this order, it is possible to receive Jesus willingly as Lord or unwillingly as Lord, but every person will enjoy either reconciling forgiveness from Jesus or they will face reconciling punishment from Jesus. But at one point, everybody will claim that Jesus is Lord. After reading this, notice this past, present, and future work of Jesus. If you were to read all of this whole entire chapter. First off, we see that by Him, Jesus Christ, all things were created. And as we discussed last week, by Him, all things consist. In other words, He is holding all things together. But then also, as we're discovering this week, by Him, all things will be consummated. In other words, all things will be reconciled and brought back to where they need to be. Paul continues this point in verses 20 through 20, 21 through 22. Look down in your Bibles. He says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight. Now notice that those last three words there. He says, Holy, unblameable, and unprovable. What are those last three words? Anybody tell me? In his sight. So what does that mean? 
that once you receive Christ, that you're not automatically made holy. You still got some serious problems. We still mess up. We still sin. But in the eyes of God, because of the righteousness of Jesus, we are now holy. We will not receive our full, um, we will not receive our full glorified bodies until uh, Jesus Christ returns. But in the eyes of God, even though we still sin, we are holy. We are justified. We are viewed by God because of the righteousness of Christ as never having any sin. How glorious is that? That is through the Father, it is through the Son that we are now reconciled. In other words, we are now made right with the Father. And Christ is preeminent in all of that because He is the only way to the Father. As I explained it to someone recently, before Christ, the Father saw us as what we are, and that is sinners. After we receive Jesus' gift of salvation, His righteousness is then transferred onto us. We refer to that as imputation. And we are justified in the eyes of God. When the Father looks at us, He sees holiness and righteousness of His Son. Therefore, the blood of Jesus, we are unblameable before the Father. The important thing to remember about this it is that not, it's not that God is moving back to us. Through Jesus, we are going back to God. God never moved. We were the ones who moved in our own sinful state. There's a story of a man and his wife. This is probably going to be, uh, well, no, I'm not going to say that. There's a story of a man and his wife driving down the road in the car. The man was driving and his car was sitting on her side, or the, the wife was sitting on her side of the car by the window. She looked out the window and noticed a nice young couple passing in their car, newly married, maybe like Michael and Rachel, you know, still got that newly married uh, love for each other. Hopefully that's still the case, right? And she saw them, they noticed that they were sitting really close to each other. She says, Fred, do you remember when we were dating? There you go. Yep, I sure do. Do you remember how you would hold my hand? Fred says, sure do. Do you remember how close we would sit when we went out in that old pickup truck of yours? Fred says, yeah, I remember. Do you remember how you would put your one arm around me and drive with just one hand? Fred says, sure do. Well, how come you don't sit like that anymore? Fred looked at her with loving eyes and said, I'm not the one who moved. In our relationship with God, God is not the one who moved. We did. Through our sinful state, our sinful nature. But it is only through Jesus Christ that we are brought back to the Father, that we are reconciled and that we are made right. As Paul concludes this section in verse 23, he gives the characteristics of those whom are truly reconciled, which leads us to our final point here this morning, and that is the perseverance of the followers of Christ. Look down at verse 23. The Apostle Paul says, If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, wherefore I, Paul, am made a minister. In essence, Paul says in verse 23 that in our perseverance and our living for Christ will serve as a proof that we are truly in Christ. This is not a works-based salvation. In other words, we don't continue to work in order to be accepted by God. Those that are genuine followers of Christ will give evidence of that in their life. The Bible says that in addition to being declared righteous, those that are reconciled are made new creatures. So therefore, as new creatures, we will have this desire, we will have this hunger, we will have this thirst to crave God. Will there be time periods in our life in which we walk away from God? Absolutely. But if somebody comes to church every single week and they have no desire to learn the things of God. 
they have no desire to follow God, they have no desire and a thirst for righteousness, then most likely they do not have a genuine relationship with God. The Bible says, as he, who won't take the time to read that, if you were to flip back to Matthew chapter 13, we see the parable of the sower. And we understand that with one of the seeds that fell on the ground, it immediately took root. And as it took root, it sprouted up. But as soon as the sun came and it scorched, that fruit died. What he was doing, what Jesus is doing in that particular example, is he was showing those that respond to the gospel. And they do it out of excitement. They do it out of an emotional state. And they show somewhat evidence of fruit. But as times get tough and as things go hard and they go down their life, they end up falling away from God. They end up walking out on God. They end up no longer serving God. What that shows us is that their lack of perseverance in their relationship with God is that they were never truly genuine followers to Christ to begin with. I've had this conversation when now ultimately we can't see people's hearts. I understand that. But I've had this conversation before with people. And if somebody grows up in church and they act like they're a Christian and they say all these things about being a Christian and then later on in their life they become an atheist, it's not that they lost their salvation. According to the scriptures, they were never followers of Christ to begin with. So my question for you this morning is, just because you're in church does not automatically mean you're a follower of Christ. Has there ever been a time in your life where you realized that you were a sinner and you realize, because it's true, that your sin cannot restore your relationship with the Father, and it is only through Jesus Christ that our relationship can be restored. If you've never come to a time in your life where you've asked God to forgive you of your sins, where you place your faith and trust in Christ alone, and you have accepted His free gift of salvation, the Bible says you are not a follower of Christ. But you can give your life to Him this morning. My question for you is, is Christ preeminent in your life? Is He number one in your life? Have you given your life to Christ? Christ demonstrated His servant leadership by dying so that we can be reconciled to the Father. This is a leader worth following and worth giving our life to. And this morning we praise Christ for His work of reconciliation.